For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. This is a new Armenia in a real sense. And the psychological revolution is a longer-term investment. Welcome to Talk Eastern Europe, a podcast dedicated to the issues of Central and Eastern Europe. My name is Adam Reichert. I am the editor-in-chief of the magazine called New Eastern Europe, based in Poland. And with me is my co-host, as always, Maciek Makulski. He's an analyst based in Warsaw and also a contributing editor with New Eastern Europe. Hello, Maciek. Hello, Adam. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm very glad that today our our topic is, is Armenia. And we are going to talk about domestic uh, issues mainly uh, and, uh, and domestic Armenian politics. But, of course, there will be also... Uh, a separate thread devoted to Armenian foreign policy. And I think this is a very good time to talk about Armenia because the the country uh, has gone through political turmoil last year. It was in April 2018 when the strong protests erupted in the capital city of Yerevan um, against the the government. Um, It was quite a complicated situation because uh, there was a process in which the the, the uh, at that time president uh, Sarkisian um, decided to became a prime minister and keep the power in the country but before that the the power was shifted from the position of president towards prime minister and the protests were actually not uh, it was something that wasn't really expected right it kind of exploded Uh, In the society, a lot of young people were a part of the protests as well. Exactly. I think that political elite counted that uh, people are rather not interested in politics and it, 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 uh, and they were thinking that it will go smoothly, but it was on the contrary. Um, And uh, what is interesting. A lot of young people uh, right. went out of the streets, yeah. and uh, I think. But there was also one important uh, factor that um, also made this protest very, very successful, from the point of view, of course, of civil society in Armenia. Um, and what I have in mind is there was a um, very charismatic leader of this protest, and mm-hmm. it is it was Nicole Pashinyan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, a very interesting uh, development, and we've been following this in New Eastern Europe. And I, I do recommend our listeners to check out uh, the latest issue of the of the magazine because we do have an article. Um, uh, which describes some of the challenges that Armenia now faces post-revolution. And I think Armenia, you know, from my perspective, Armenia is a very interesting case and a very interesting country because it is a member of the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union, uh, and at the same time, it is a member of the of the European Union's Eastern Partnership Program. It has a special cooperation and partnership agreement with the European Union, which was signed 
in the framework of the Eastern Partnership. And for our listeners who may or not may not be familiar with the Eastern Partnership, this is an European Union policy aimed at uh, better engagement and cooperation with some post-Soviet states, particularly the six states of Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, and Armenia uh, being one of those critical states uh, that uh, that uh, that is part of the Eastern Partnership. And I think I, I would also point out um, why Armenia is very important, even though it's kind of this small landlocked country in the South Caucasus, is that it has a um, open conflict with with Azerbaijan, its neighbor, over the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, region, as well as, as very very uh, tense relations with Turkey uh, over a lot of historical issues. Uh, and in fact, they have a closed border with Turkey. So the fact that this revolution broke out in Armenia it really starts to a- open a lot of question, a lot of questions. And uh, that is part of what we wanted to do at Talk Eastern Europe with this with this uh, episode is to look at and try to answer some of the questions that have been opened as a result of the revolution from from last year and the elections and a new government which have come into power uh, at the at the end of last year. Of course, the developments in Armenia um, have consequences, of course, to the region. But uh, let me add a uh, uh, few points more to the internal context of, of this protest and the situation in Armenia. Because the main result of the protest that was that, that the previous elite... Um, had to resign, and Nikol Pashinyan, as I said, the leader of this protest, became a prime minister. But his position at that time was not very stable because his party was not uh, not in charge. So after a few months, he decided to to organize the elections, and the elections took place uh, in December 2018, mm-hmm. and his political par- uh, force won this election with a huge minority. So he... Majority. Majority. Uh, so uh, he achieved uh, a lot o- o- already, and uh, now I think we are in such a situation that... Uh, you know, he is not anymore a leader of the protest. Right now, he is a leader of the country, yeah. and now uh, it is a test for him to become a leader of change mm. in Armenia. And uh, and I think a lot of people trust him and and to really look for for a change. Mm-hmm. So this is why I think this uh, this is important to talk now about uh, Armenia because it is already a couple months after the elections and we can uh, check to what extent uh, Pashinyan managed to consolidate his power mm-hmm. and how uh, stable the situation in the country is and what also, this is very important I think uh, mm, uh, civil society stands for now. You know? Right. Right, and for this uh, for this episode, uh, in in order to try to get deeper into the situation in Armenia, we Machek and I were recently at the College of Europe in Natalin, uh, which is in Warsaw. Uh, there was a special conference that took place, uh, which was dedicated to celebrating and debating ten years of the Eastern Partnership Project. And on uh, the panel that I debated was uh, Richard Girogosian. 
uh, from Armenia, and uh, we managed to to catch him and do a, a an interview with him to talk about these issues. Yes, and uh, let me just introduce uh, uh, Richard. Sure. R- Richard Giragosian is the founding director of the Regional Studies Center in Yerevan. This is an independent think tank dealing mostly with political issues related to the Southern Caucasus. Great, great. So with that, let's let's listen to the interview. We are here uh, live at the uh, College of Europe uh, Natalin campus in Warsaw with Richard Girgozian, who is the director of the um, Regional Study Center in Yerevan, Armenia. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Um, we wanted to sit down and talk with Richard today about um, the developments that have been taking place in Armenia, because it's been quite an interesting situation that has been uh, unfolding in that country over the last uh, year or so. Um, And in our most recent issue of uh, New Eastern Europe, we have uh, an article which is looking at the challenges that will face um, Armenia uh, currently, domestically and geopolitically, Um, quite a bit of challenges. And so we're very interested in getting your your thoughts and opinions on that. Um, And uh, I think maybe um, as, uh, as since we are Having this conversation during a conference on the 10-year anniversary of the Eastern Partnership, it might be good to start with this topic, considering that Armenia is also a member of the Eastern Partnership. Um, and I w- we would like to ask maybe, what is your opinion of the current perspective of Armenia uh, as a member of the Eastern Partnership? Um, what is its relations with the European Union? And what are the perspectives now that there has been some changes in Armenia? First, let's start from that broader context. And what's most interesting is Armenia's evolution and transformation as a member of the Eastern Partnership body of six countries. What we saw for many years, unfortunately, was a division within the Eastern Partnership where among the six member states, there were two groups that emerged. Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia were able to negotiate and sign the association agreements with the European Union, including the most important DCFTAs, Deep and Comprehensive Free Trade Agreements. The second group, however, that emerged was Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Belarus, almost in terms of a second-class level, where each of the countries, for different reasons, were unable or unwilling to actually forge ahead with association agreements. And in the case of Armenia, sadly, there was a strategic U-turn. Despite a successful negotiation and even initialing of an association agreement, at the last minute, in a rather abrupt decision by the then Armenian president, uh, Armenia was forced to sacrifice its association agreement and instead commit to Putin's prison of the Eurasian Economic Union. What we see more recently, however, Under the old Armenian government, even prior to the change of government, we saw a success in terms of Armenia and the EU having a rare second chance to repair and restore relations and regain trust in what became known as the SEPA Agreement, 
a strategic enhanced cooperation agreement between Armenia and the EU that was negotiated and signed under the old government. What we see more recently, in April 2018, a successful and rather rare example of nonviolent people power succeeding in forcing the resignation of a sitting incumbent government. This adds yet another new dynamic to the Eastern Partnership in terms of a success within the Eastern Partnership beyond the stories of Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, where Armenia has regained its role as a more democratic country and with a higher degree of political will committed to reform. What this means in real practical terms is a rare success, not just for Armenia, but also for the Eastern Partnership. And in many ways, one could argue it was a move that salvaged and saved the credibility of the EU through its Eastern Partnership. Before we go into um, Armenian domestic politics, I would like to continue for a while this topic and build upon what you have already said. A question um, regarding the po- the support of the society towards the EU, because back to 2013, I, I was in Armenia uh, engaged in the youth project uh, between uh, NGOs from the European Union and from Armenia. And I, what I remember best is this huge uh, positive image uh, and trust towards the EU that young Armenians had at that time and I'm interested in that in this like um, re-establishing let's say as you mentioned of closer cooperation now between Armenia and the EU what uh, what is the opinion of the society and especially young people towards the EU like do you think that we've lost something or on the contrary there is still like uh, you know the, the the will of the because the political will of the leader is one thing but question is if there is a will of the society to to continue these talks That's a very good question. In fact, there are three separate factors driving this particular context. First is the contradictory paradox of Armenia in terms of how Armenia, as a country with a population as well, committed to the belief that Russia and only Russia can provide security guarantees for Armenia, especially in the context of the unresolved Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, while at the same time maintaining a pro-Western orientation. This example of geopolitical schizophrenia, a contradiction, a paradox, is a unique result of Armenian history, where traditionally Armenia has always sought balance between a pro-Western orientation with a realistic reliance on Russia. In other words, for Armenia and its population, the essential pursuit of national interest was based on a pragmatic policy where we import weapons and subsidized gas from Russia, but we import values and aspirations from Europe. While at the same time, much of our global Armenian diaspora is politically active in the West and in the United States. This is a paradox. It is rather contradictory, yet it works in terms of small state survival. 
The second interesting factor driving this is the reality that despite the close relationship between Armenia and the Russian Federation, especially in security terms or remittances and labor migration, despite these factors, the European Union has been and continues to be the largest donor in Armenia, eclipsing Russian investment in Armenia. Second, it is only recently that Russia has overcome the European Union as Armenia's number one trade partner. In terms of imports and exports, the European Union is a very close second, behind Russia only in the past several years. And in many ways, Russia and the former Soviet space are no longer the natural trading partners for Armenia. In terms of Armenian bilateral trade with China, Iran, even Turkey, there is a more deeper and more complex dynamic. The third reason explaining this paradox or driving this factor is the trend in recent years where there is a deepening crisis in the relationship between Armenia and Russia. On the one hand, Russia is too important to Armenia to directly challenge, but rather the Armenian frustration and challenge is over the terms of that relationship not the relationship itself. In other words, the arrogance and asymmetry with which Russia takes Armenia for granted, the Armenian position, justifiable, that Russia does not treat Armenia with respect or as an ally should, and of course, arms sales to Azerbaijan, where in reality, Russia has emerged as the number one arms provider to both Armenia and Azerbaijan. This deepening crisis in relations continues to this day and will present a geopolitical challenge both to Moscow as well as to Yerevan. But Armenia is actually gaining more room to maneuver in terms of exploiting its geography and its position, also in a positive way, as a bridge between the European Union and the Eurasian Economic Union. And that's one area where I want to add a little bit further in terms of a unique opportunity for Armenia to take its negative geography constraints and make them into a positive advantage. Mm -hmm. And what I'm referring to specifically is Armenia is the only member of the Eurasian Economic Union with such a high-level strategic partnership with the EU, mm -hmm. higher than Kazakhstan. And in this context, Armenia is now seeking to be a bridge between institutional engagement, potentially between the Eurasian Economic Union and the European Union. It's something that several EU member states individually are seeking, but it's also addressing the weakest part of the Eurasian Economic Union project. What Russia needs most and the Eurasian Economic Union is credibility. And they lack credibility in terms of being taken seriously on a world stage. You are going to play a role. Uh, specifically by a marriage of convenience between either the EU or some EU member states mm -hmm. with the Eurasian Economic Union. As well as Armenia's position as a stable and friendly neighbor for Iran and potentially taking the Armenia-Turkish border, which is closed, and 
elevating the significance so that it's also a border between Turkey and the Eurasian Economic Union. So Armenia's role as a bridge is also as a platform for European Union engagement through Armenia into Iran, Iranian outreach or exports through Armenia into the Eurasian Economic Union as well. Before we get into domestic politics, I do want to ask one question, a follow-up question. And you mentioned the diaspora, mostly active in the West and, 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 and sometimes part, um, politically active as well. We know that the West doesn't have the best relations with Russia at the moment. My, my question is, how is the, the Armenian diaspora attitudes towards Armenia's strategic relationship with Russia? Well, that's a very good question. And to be honest, there's no clear answer. Mm. One observation, however, is that there's an interesting division of labor between different communities of the Armenian diaspora. For example, the Armenians in Russia, a diasporan community, are politically inactive, Mm -hmm. but are much more important economically. In other words, Armenians working and living in Russia account for over 90% of remittances that come to Armenia. It's money that's important in terms of providing a social safety net for the more vulnerable. And it's an economic role that is not matched by money coming from France or the United States or Argentina. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Armenian communities of North America and South America are much more politically sophisticated and are active in terms of lobbying and advocacy. And in fact, this also prevents Armenia from being forced into the confrontation between the West and Russia. Mm -hmm. It allows political power to maintain a low profile, if you will. At the same time, the level of diasporan investment and economic interest in Armenia is meager is low. Part of the reason has been years of entrenched corruption, but also a lack of economic opportunities, where two of the four borders of Armenia remain closed. There's little in terms of real economic opportunity or a promising investment climate. Only recently, with the change of government, there is potential and promise for further economic development. That's why the role of the diaspora, as distinct and significant as it is politically or financially, is really not a driver for development or democratization. This is much more an internal, authentic, but indigenous movement. Hello, listeners. If you enjoy listening to Talk Eastern Europe, you can now show your support by becoming a monthly patron. We set up a Patreon page which allows listeners to choose from various tiers of support from $2 through $20, and supporters get special benefits depending on how much they donate. Even $2 a month will help us invest in and expand our podcast potential. And for those donating $20 or more, our super supporters, 
they get complete digital access to New Eastern Europe online, where you can read the current and archival issues of the magazine. That's over seven years of downloadable content. Check it out and become a supporter today. That's www.patreon.com slash talkeasterneurope. www.patreon.com slash talkeasterneurope. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I would like to start this part... Uh... From a question about one of the or the main actor responsible for the most recent political changes in Armenia, I mean of course Nikol Pashinyan, the the, the prime minister now, mm, and uh, it's it is now more than one hundred days the, uh, f- uh, since the parliamentary elections in December. Mm, so I think it is enough time now to talk about the, 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 the way towards some kind of a consolidation of the new political regime uh, in Armenia. And uh, the question I would like to ask is um, uh, related to the uh, situation in which, you know, it is uh, when Pashinyan was a um, protester and the leader of the protest movement, we can say that it is always easier uh, to be against something or someone than to build uh, something new and something stable, something that people can trust. And I would like to ask about your assessment, how successful Pashinyan is in in switching the role of the leader of the protest towards the leader of change. Well, let me begin with a disclaimer, and that is the fact that Nikol Pashinyan is both a friend and I am a supporter. In terms of the reality that I am the director of an independent think tank, and the most important aspect of that is the independent nature of the think tank. So we do not work directly in the government. Having said that, and although I do not speak on behalf of the Armenian government, I do speak in favor of the Armenian government. What we see, having that in mind, is two interesting developments that you touch upon in the question. First is the rather unexpectedly quick and easy coming to power by Pashinyan and his team and his political movement was a surprise to many of us. And it basically represented an unexpected tipping point where it reflects a combination of years of frustration 
an accumulation of rage, humiliation among the population, given the last decade of the country being governed by a rather arrogant and generally corrupt entrenched elite. What we see, however, is that in many ways was the easy part. The real challenge was the day after coming to power, as you point out, in terms of the challenges and the need for compromise and concession. In other words, the essence of politics, the art of politics, instead of one-party domination. And what we saw in the recent elections, as good as they were as a free and fair election, accepted by the population and international observers, there was one shortcoming, the lack of a viable, large enough opposition. And this represents a dangerous trend of one-party rule replacing one-party rule. Therefore, the lack of a sizable constructive opposition is a problem for a country that lacks institutional checks and balances and that is new to a parliamentary form of government, which is both unprecedented for Armenia, but has only recently been introduced. That's right, because they actually made that switch before, right? Fact, and that was the trigger, right. where the former president, after his two terms, tried to stay in power as prime minister and the head of the new form of government. This was the tipping point or trigger. Mm. What we also see is a third point here, and the reason I'm somewhat optimistic, in that the future trajectory is we will have informal checks and balances where the role of the president will be much less symbolic and more authentic than, say, Georgia, and the beginning of a new parliament that begins to fulfill its role as an oversight body and legislative initiator, in contrast to the former pyramid structure. Everything was presidential, now it's prime ministerial. The parliament is beginning to feel its own responsibility. What we also see, however, is a dangerous lesson from Georgia under Saakashvili, where the West previously, in my opinion, made a mistake in investing too much in the role of an individual Democrat. In Armenia, that's important. It's personified in Pashinyan. But an individual Democrat, as important as he or she may be, is not enough for sustainable democratization. What's needed is institutional democracy. And this is where the West's approach to Armenia to sustain the momentum of reform is necessary to focus on strengthening the institutions, not the individuals. Mm -hmm. And the real threat to the Armenian government is not from the former government. It comes, moreover, from dangerously high expectations among its own supporters and mm -hmm. population where the government, with little experience, will actually be challenged to deliver and to produce results for a population hungry for change. In other words, for the ordinary Armenian citizen, they're expecting their new government to change the quality of their daily life immediately. It's a challenge for any new government in any country. But what we also see, the new government of Armenia because of a lack of experience, 
has made several mistakes. But that, in my opinion, is both normal and expected. It happens for any country with a new government. The key test is to what degree the, the government is learning from the mistakes and not repeating the mistakes. One thing that often happens when there's a revolution, we start seeing a movement of a counter-revolution. Uh, maybe it's still too early to see any signs like this in Armenia, but you talked about high expectations. Has there already been criticism being lobbied to, uh, lobbed towards, uh, towards the government, or is there a certain sense of patience among the society because they know that these changes that need to be introduced, particularly in institutions, as you mentioned, are, are very challenging and, and will take some time? That's a very good question because it explains the premise, what I would argue analytically, of why Armenia is the exception and more a hybrid example. And what I'm referring to are two specific factors. The first is Nikol Pashinyan, as the leader, was able to transform popular support in the street to popular legitimacy in the institutions. Mm -hmm. The avenue... And the stamp of approval was the free and fair election of parliament in December. But what this means is he's endowed with a gift that any Western politician would be jealous of. That's a gift of patience and sacrifice to this moment in time, where much of the population, although still anxious to see their improvement and to have the government deliver results, is still offering an extended honeymoon period because they see Pashinyan as one of their own and are willing to wait and are willing to have faith in him. What this means over the medium term is short-term patience, sacrifice, willingness to wait, but it raises the stakes even higher and the expectations even more if he fails to deliver. But the second interesting element of why the Armenian case is so different, I would argue because it's not the classical revolution as we know it. His pathway to power was based on the resignation, not the revolution. In other words, it was the former president-turned-prime minister who, to his credit, left power very quickly and very easily without a fight. It was a rare example of a peaceful change of power. And in fact, unlike other post-Soviet examples, the former leader remains living in Armenia, did not <laughs> flee the country or seek exile in Moscow. What's Is he still a public figure <clears throat> at all? He, he, of course, but not in a political sense. Okay, okay. But confident and safe enough? Yes. Mm -hmm. What's interesting in my point here is the revolution, as it's called now, began only recently. In other words, the forced resignation, the coming to power, changing of the guard, that was not a classical revolution because a revolution implies and infers sweeping systemic change. That was not the case in Armenia. The revolution now underway is psychological. Mm. It's changing the mindset and the discourse. And this is why it's more optimistic, because it's more pragmatic and gradual than most revolutions, therefore more likely to succeed. Hence, 
no danger of a counter-revolution. There are some signs of disgruntled people, even some political tension, but there's no viable, credible alternative. The former opposition and the former government are widely discredited. Pashinyan represents a demographic change as well. A new generation. This is also why there's no possibility of going back or any regress into retreating into the previous status quo. The old guard is wholly discredited, widely unpopular. They failed to even meet the minimum threshold for even one seat of parliament. Moreover, it's generational. It's the demographic. The key cohort now, if we look at deputy ministers who have their first jobs out of university right now in government, this is a new Armenia in a real sense. And the psychological revolution is a longer-term investment. But Armenia in this context is very small in size, territory, and population, meaning that in this context, it doesn't take much and it doesn't take many for real change. And the change is already underway. It's, it's good because we have opened already so many topics, so we can now um, take this opportunity and, and go a little bit deeper in different uh, in different aspects of our conversation. I, I very liked what you have said before about the um, this 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 possible role of Armenia as a bridge and platform between East and West. Uh, especially bridge, the metaphor of bridge was used many times and was attached to very different countries, also in Poland, to um, in the past. But but the uh, the platform uh, sounds promising because to me it sounds a little bit as a possible future model of foreign policy for um, Armenia to conduct foreign policy, how to behave, and this picture um, might be much more realistic because it's 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 uh, put strongly on the reality which which is which is there in the region but built upon that uh, i i would like to express a concern which i uh, which i have uh, especially if we talk uh, about the role of the eu towards the region because uh, what we can uh, say, what is the difference between the impact of Russia and the impact of the EU towards the Southern Caucasus region is that Russia may use mostly hard power or the threat of hard power when the, the, the let's call it a, um, EU weapons is rather of soft power kind. And the, 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 the issue I would like to raise is that and this is expressed by 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 many people. Um, what are the limits of the EU soft power towards uh, countries like uh, Armenia? Uh, because there are signs that if DCFTA uh, is is already there, I know Armenia is of course still in the pro. It's not a part of DCFTA. There there is no DCFTA in Armenia. But nevertheless, if there is a DCFTA and there is visa-free regime, uh, what comes next? Like how to maintain this um, attractiveness of the EU in the region? And uh, in the case of Armenia, now it it seems to be important uh, because of what you have said that to 
keep this balance between East and West. Yeah? So. One general observation first, uh, where I somewhat disagree with the premise of your question. Perhaps I'm very wrong or in a minority. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But I see Russia in a position of weakness, not strength. Mm-hmm. A position of insecurity, not confidence regarding Armenia and the South Caucasus. Mm-hmm. In other words, from an Armenian perspective, there is no contest. Russia, yes, is a source of arms, subsidized gas, remittances, labor. The Russian strategy is based on what I call the 3G approach. Guns, goods, and gas. In terms of coercive pressure. The EU, in contrast, is based on the appeal and seduction of values. For Armenia, the EU represents the future and where we want to be, where we want to go, what kind of country we want to become. A certain vision of... of Russia represents a dangerous retreat into the past where Russian values are what? Corruption, authoritarianism military misadventure, nothing we welcome or invite. Moreover, if we look at the young generation, the agent of change, the overwhelming majority, if not nearly all, aspire to study in the United States and Europe. Very few, if any, want to study in Vladivostok or Krasnodar or even Moscow. In fact, if we look at Russian language proficiency, and the trend in Armenia and Georgia, as well as Azerbaijan. There's an indicator of who's winning the battle. But for Armenia, it's less about soft power versus hard power. It's about smart power in terms of rebranding Armenia, using our own soft power, and not necessarily engaging in a contest of hard power competition, but rather leveraging our own innovative statecraft. This is how we've survived in the past. And increasingly, it's economic. Hence, our emphasis is on IT. It's on digitalization. It's on developing the country despite closed borders and isolation and becoming more significant as a player. But at the same time, we're much more pragmatic than, say, Georgia. Georgia's mistake, in my opinion, is an unrealistic, very unhelpful obsession with NATO membership. For Armenia, we do not, at this time, aspire to join the EU. We're not ready and we're not interested. It's a cold calculation, but it's prudent. 
NATO membership has never been attractive to Armenia and probably won't be. This is perhaps a more realistic assessment than our neighbors. Moreover, what this shows is an overwhelming focus on strengthening the development domestically, internally. More democracy and economic development first, then reforming foreign policy and national security. And I think this is a rare chance where Armenia will no longer have an opportunity to miss an opportunity. This is a new chapter for Armenia to actually finally exploit the few opportunities that are far between in terms of this region. And increasingly, the region is still a region at risk, but the promise is now outweighing the, the peril. So I kind of get a sense that what you're saying a little bit is that Pashinyan's um, role now is to kind of delicately detangle Armenia bit by bit from Russia, but not in such a way that there, it will have a huge reaction from Russia. Um, also, lesson learned from Georgia in, in this respect. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, there were two lessons learned. And in fact, it also shows the degree of preparation for this change of government. We saw two lessons learned specifically. The first was Georgia. The second was Ukraine. Mm. Ukraine was the more important lesson learned. And what I'm referring to specifically is the tactical decision by Pashinyan and his supporters in the very beginning to challenge the Armenian government, but to ban and prohibit the use of flags other than Armenian flags. There was a conscious decision based on studying Ukraine to avoid a geopolitical contest or context. This wasn't about the West versus the East. This was a domestic-driven, domestic-limited agenda. The lesson from Georgia was also very instructive to avoid the temptation of vendetta politics, to avoid the revenge in terms of coming to power and persecuting and prosecuting anyone and everyone affiliated with the former regime. Mm. This was also avoided in key appointments as well, not to push either oligarchs or corrupt political predecessors into a corner where they had no place to go and no way to legitimize themselves. And this was smart in terms of avoiding a civil war style development. What we also see is foreign policy is the weakest area and the most vulnerable for the Armenian government. Therefore, a delicate, gradual disentanglement. What we also see is much less emphasis on an exit strategy We cannot leave the Eurasian Economic Union realistically or easily or the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Therefore, how can we play our weak hand better? And what's interesting, if we look at the balance, and there is more balance between the West and Russia for Armenia, there's a more innovative and sophisticated element. It's no longer bipolar. It's a triad where Armenia is investing much more in its bilateral relationship with China as a more acceptable vector for Russia, probably not provoking an overreaction from Moscow because it's China, it's not the West, right. and being able to play off 
these competing power centers more. And the appeal of the Chinese is both in the military security sector, surprisingly, but strategically, the Belt Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is why Armenia is beginning to transform or leverage its geography. And with Iran, Armenia's advantage is Armenia, like Iran, it's a shared isolation, but Armenia is the only stable neighbor of Iran. Iran has Afghanistan and Iraq. Armenia offers a welcome, refreshing, friendly, stable way out of its isolation and a way for the West, or at least the Europeans, if not the Trump Americans, to engage Iran. One question I think that needs to be asked about is the relations with Azerbaijan, particularly the, the conflict uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh. I, mean, I, have, I From my observations, I haven't seen really any change in, in Armenian policy. Maybe there has been some, uh, some discussions, uh, some, some open discussions, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is, there, is there any new chance for a new opening? between Armenia and Azerbaijan with the change in Armenia? Or is this something that we have to think about as much a long, longer-term um, process? The quick answer and the easy answer is both. Mm-hmm. And let me explain. Generally, in Armenian foreign policy, interestingly, there's more consistency, more continuation, where normalization with Turkey and the peace process with Azerbaijan are continuing. There's no real change. You're right. There is a significant change in tactics by Azerbaijan, however. Azerbaijan, over the past several months, has adopted a much more moderate position and posture. Hence, much more personal meetings and now formal summitry, Mm -hmm. suggesting higher expectations for some kind of progress and breakthrough. I think this is a tactical shift and not a strategic change, however. And in many ways, it increases the risk over the medium term that Azerbaijan, if it really believes or expects Armenia to be able to deliver a concession in the short term, Armenia won't be able to. Mm -hmm. And it will actually dangerously return to an even riskier place where Azerbaijan will be frustrated and may say, we've tried diplomacy, it didn't work, force of arms. Mm. Hence, the return of a risk of a war by accident. Also, because the Armenian position is still inherently weak on this issue. It has no nationalist security credentials on Nagorno-Karabakh. And with a priority on domestic reform, I don't expect any breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Mm So maybe about this um, psychological revolution you you mentioned, uh, and because it, it it sounds to be really really great that new generation of Armenia are uh, Armenians are ready to uh, to be engaged in fact in, in reforming the country, uh, but do you observe also um, a change and maybe here similar to uh, Ukraine of main Maintaining uh, mobilization in within the society that maybe now the society is observing more closely the developments of uh, on or what government is doing doing, but also do you observe this kind of is it the is it maybe a part of this psychological revolution a situation in which 
the society believes now that uh, okay we have partners abroad but there's also some job to be done by us yeah and take the people simply are aware that they need to take more responsibility for the country is there something like that you observe let me start with the positive and that's your last point what's most interesting is this was a successful victory of a non-violent movement and what was most interesting was there was no american involvement the europeans were surprised and two steps behind russia was uncharacteristically passive and permissive meaning that it was a genuine indigenous authentic success therefore the armenians especially today after that don't want western or russian or any foreign interference or influence they can help give us the tools we'll build our own house but we're not going to hire subcontractors moreover the real danger here is the inexperience of the government if it transforms into dangerous arrogance the real problem is you have no viable credible opposition you have a new government consisting of activists youth agents of change meaning that if there's popular frustration there's not going to be anyone to demonstrate because the demonstrators and activists are in the government what this means is chaos disorder instability if something goes very wrong in other words a leaderless frustration which could destabilize the country much quicker and much more dangerously than any kind of political or at least a rule-based opposition hence the danger now is to make sure and ensure that yes activism continues we don't need apathy but it's based on rules in other words it may be tempting for a popular government to cut corners and in the name of democracy to impulsively impose their will uh, in other words uh dictatorial under the guise of democracy and this is where the absence of a rule of law checks and balances and a real opposition may be tempting in terms of arguing that the popular support endows enough legitimacy and this is why expertise is crucial and also to prevent the arrogance of power simply transferring from one pyramid one party rule to yet another would you say however though are you optimistic about the current outlook of the, of the way things are going in armenia i would go even further and the reason i say this is not only am i optimistic but i'm maybe crazy for leaving the united states and moving to armenia 12 years ago but i'm not a fool I wouldn't stay in Armenia if I was not justifiably optimistic especially now. Richard, thank you so much for the discussion. Uh, it's been very great to have you here and um we will definitely be watching the developments uh, and hope that we can can meet up again in the future and and come back to to the 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 developments. Thank you. Thank you.